Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Derek Hunter Show for this Monday, the 14th day of August 2023. I am Dean Carianis, and I have the high honor of being your guest host this entire week while Derek is away. I was a member of Rush Limbaugh's highly overrated staff, as he lovingly referred to us, first on the TV show in the mid-90s. Those of you who remember Rush Limbaugh, the television show, may even have seen me on there. Then, up until Rush passed away, the last 22 years, I was on the radio side. I always hesitate to use the word producer, because there's a lot of people out there who are claiming that they were the secret behind Rush. You may have also heard me on James Golden's show, Bo Snerdly, speaking to somebody who was right there with Rush from the very beginning. He has given me the honor of being the official historian of Bo Snerdly's Rush Hour. I am a columnist for the New York Sun. I am the host of the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, and I produce up some video documentaries for the show on YouTube with my guests. I have been where you are at this very moment in your life. When you crank up the computer speaker... And the relationship you have with a trusted voice is broken. It's a moment of stranger danger. Who is this person in my ears? What is this bait and switch? Well, I hope that this surprise is a pleasant one because like Derek, I do value the audience. I do value ideas. I do value words. And it's something that's becoming very, very rare these days in media, especially in conservative media. And that's a topic I'm going to touch upon this week because there's a whole lot of grifting going on out there. And it's been a while since anybody has done an impression of the late Senator Howell Heflin, very foghorn leghorn in his voice, and in his intonations. Pay attention when I'm talking to you, boy. In addition to working for Rush on the TV show and on his radio show, I served a three-year sentence at Fox News Channel during and after the launch in the mid to late 90s. Gee, I said sentence, didn't I? Hmm. That's kind of weird. What's that all about? Makes it sound like it was a prison. Well, more on that later. You can find me at History Dean on Twitter or at HistoryAuthor.com. Please do remember to support Derek at Patreon.com slash Derek Hunter Podcast or at DerekHunter.Locals.com. Derek didn't ask me to do those plugs, by the way. And I wanted to mention that to all of you because he's somebody who, like me and certainly like Rush, does not look at listeners as customers. He doesn't look at you as sheep to be fleeced. He's looking at you really as people just like us, who we want to talk with honestly and intelligently, never talk down to, and certainly not always be turning you upside down like those old cartoons and trying to shake the money out of your wallet. So go and support Derek at Patreon. And speaking of the value he gives you, he will be doing the weekend effing review for all of you fine people. That drops on Saturday at 12.01 a.m. After five days in silence, Derek will no doubt have lots of news to talk about the way it deserves to be talked about. Despite that really mean phrase about not trusting us when we're bearing gifts. Greeks, by the way, I am one, and I felt that I should continue Derek's tradition of offering all of you the chance to win signed books. So over at the New York Sun, we were working on a giveaway, autographed copies of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's book, that's Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love. You can sign up for those at nysun.com slash book. That's pretty easy to remember, nysun.com slash book. And go there, get a copy of Mike Pompeo's book, 
Also, there's an offer that we have that we also fast track for all of you. And that's, you can get the Sun subscribe for just a penny a day. It was the first penny daily. The paper traces its lineage back to 1833 before the New York Times. All of you at New York Times. <laughs> we were there before you were born. That's nysun.com slash mug because you also get a very nice New York Sun mug with that classic logo. And that logically brings me to one of my columns. The big news of the day, of course, and every day, as it seems, is President Trump related and the latest indictment against him. This has been an amazing thing for somebody of a history mindset to watch this entire process. And as somebody from a political mindset to see a person come out of nowhere and win the presidency the way that President Trump did is just amazing. And I feel kind of bad for other people in politics that make a business of this, that are unable to just marvel at this moment that we live in, that he was able to accomplish this. He is the only person to ever win the presidency that never held either a government or a military position. And he did it all very seat of his pants. And while many of us, and I know Derek shares this opinion, wish that he was just 10% less Trumpy. It's the basis of his personality that allowed him to accomplish this incredible feat. Of course, he was helped a little bit by the fact that he was running against Hillary Clinton, who, as Dennis Miller said, people disliked Hillary so much, they went and found somebody they disliked even more and voted for him just to stick it to her. The latest news was Judge Chutkin's contentious first hearing in the Trump 2000 election case. That's the word CNN uses anyway in their headline from their Saturday piece. Takeaways from Judge Chutkin's contentious first hearing in the Trump 2020 election case. Now, contentious, that's one of those words that we wouldn't use in the New York Sun. We ban the word controversial, for instance. That's banned in the New York Sun Starbook. So is expert. It's another word that we just don't use because it's so meaningless. And I'm going to get to something related to that here that the judge said at the end of this story. But what court hearing is not contentious? You wouldn't be in court if there wasn't something that was being contentious, right? People in the public eye, usually they're controversial. It's it's nothing to put that little qualifier, that little dig before. And I'm sure all of you will have recognized that that's a word that's usually applied to somebody that is a conservative, that is on the right. Very rarely do you hear somebody like Noam Chomsky be referred to as controversial. The guy certainly is. He always reminds me of Balf. Remember Balf from Atlas Shrugged? People would call him Ralph and he would correct them. This is something that people love to do. They love to be able to correct you. So they'll spell their names weird. Come on, your name is Norm. Will you stop it already? Well, what are you thinking? Anthony Blinken. That's how every person in New Jersey and New York reads that name. Where's the H? Go buy an H. Call Pat Sajak. I'm sure he has an H laying around to sell you. Anthony is a much better name. In the Greek language, one of the reasons we have these really long vowel-choked last names is if a letter is in a name, you have to say it. Let's not even get into Senator Crapo from Utah. I know he says Crapo, but I'm sorry, the letters are not there for it. Anyway, as I was saying, U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin wasted little time taking charge of the historic case by special counsel Jack Smith against former President Donald Trump using a Friday hearing to make clear she doesn't want a political carnival. Well, political, which is a word that appears a lot in here, is also something that tends only to be aimed at Republicans and conservatives. 
And I blame them. I blame the GOP here for not fighting back on things like this. Somehow the only political person here is Donald Trump. The guy is a politician in the sense that he held office, but there's plenty of politics that's going on out there. We all see it every day. And if CNN wants to recover some of that viewership, they probably should avoid these really obvious ham-handed remarks that they will make reporting things like that. But this is what the judge says. No political circus, all aimed at Donald Trump. The story is aimed at all the things that she disciplines him about and is really trying to cast it as he is the one that is on trial here, not only in the literal sense, but also in the figurative sense. He said he's the victim of a political persecution. We all know he loves to play that victim card. What did the judge say? The judge says, no, no, there's nothing political about this particular prosecution. And that's because, well, of course, as I said, they've already got this notion in everyone's mind that only the people I don't like are political. And for the folks at CNN and the ones writing articles like this, that means Donald Trump. That's political. Their opinions are just what is. They're like air. It's like fish swimming in water. They don't even know that they're wet. It's just how it is. How you can say this is not a political operation when obviously there's politics involved, everything is political. That's something that definitely jumped out at me right there from that story that's going on. This notion that this all happens in a bubble and in a bottle is really ridiculous. I think any person that is even against President Trump wouldn't want to continually feed this notion that he has everybody against him because the American people tend to resist that. They don't like it. They root for the underdog. They root for the person that's being punished and being set upon on all sides by enemies, especially from the government. That's how our nation was born, right? Was trying to stick a fork in the eye of the government, telling the British, get out of here, leave me alone. So the more that they do that, the more powerful and the more likely candidate they will make President Trump. The fact that he's still tied 43% to 43% with President Biden after all of this is simply shocking. I did like the fact, though, that at the end of the judge's comments and the end of this CNN story, she says, I live in Washington. Everyone is a consultant. Now, she was saying that because President Trump wanted to be able to share some of the things that go on in court with consultants, and she doesn't want any of it to leak out. But to me, that's something that's really jumping out at me off the page because it's true. Everybody is a consultant. Everybody is an expert. Again, that band, New York Sun word. People can become reverends. They wake up one day. I'm a reverend. I'm a pastor. And my father-in-law was a pastor. So I, I have nothing against pastors, certainly. Environmentalist. You can wake up one day and just be one of these things. We have a whole generation, millennials. They were born. They had a title. And with that title came some kind of expert status. When you don't have to do anything to be an expert. What does that mean? Was there a moment you weren't an expert and then you became an expert? Is there a moment that you were a consultant and then you said, yep, here you go. Here's your badge. To me, having worked in TV news in the old days, which the 90s are now, you wouldn't put on a person who just had worked on a campaign for a few weeks getting coffee with a U.S. senator. We wouldn't even put on U.S. senators with members of the House because it was considered to be an imbalance. Well, that's all out the window now. And this is something I've discussed personally many times with Doug Schoen, who ran President Clinton's 1996 presidential campaign. I wrote a column about that, which you may enjoy. We just love to get together. It's so great to speak to someone knowledgeable, even that you disagree with on some policy issues. If you look at Doug Schoen, who he would be on with back in the 90s and who they'll try to stick him on with now, 
it's some young kid who doesn't have the life experience, frankly, or the professional experience to know what's going on. I know Derek said something last week. I was listening to him about the Reagan presidency, and he said, you were in the mailroom for five minutes during the Reagan administration, and you have suddenly all these stories about, well, when I was in the Reagan administration, this is something on a personal level that for me, I try never to do that with Rush. Whereas we protected him with our silence when he was alive and protected his privacy, and he certainly protected ours. Now that he's passed away, it's this weird flipping of a switch after 30 years where now I talk about him more just to protect that legacy in a different way because he's not here to protect himself and to pass on all the knowledge he had and the wisdom about the issues of the day. When I look at what's happening now with President Trump, things that he will say, things that he will do, things that are recorded here in stories like this at CNN, I'm always still in that excellence in broadcasting mode. I always still look for the thing nobody else is talking about, and I try to put it out there in the New York Sun. And this election, to me, yes, it was contentious, but nothing like, say, the 1876 election. As far as the election, the election aftermath, that's all different. I wrote a column in the Washington Times, and I said, Pushing this notion that our democracy is a delicate Fabergé egg is what's damaging our democracy and our nation. The idea that a few unarmed dopes dressed as the Grand Poobah from Fred Flintstone's Water Buffalo Lodge could somehow overturn our republic is ridiculous. There were many disgusting things that were done then. I know my stomach turned when I saw a Confederate flag there at the Capitol. There's that mark at Gettysburg, the high water mark of the Confederacy. And this dope who probably doesn't even know somebody like John Bell Hood and couldn't tell you the date that Gettysburg happened is there carrying that flag up there. That made my stomach turn. It was a a very bad look and horrible, but we've had these kinds of things before. The bonus marchers, certainly in the Great War, World War I to all of you, those guys were armed. Those guys were a military force and they ended up being dispersed from the Capitol. Unfortunately, the chief of police did that really, but guys like General MacArthur, General Eisenhower, General Patton, certainly President Hoover, who said, see if you can get this done and and peaceably disperse them. Don't have any casualties. Of course, hey, it happened on his watch. So he's often blamed for that. And also he's one of those guys that the left and Democrats never got over ripping poor Hoover. They were still ripping him as late as the 70s right? If you recall the all in the family theme, they were still ripping Hoover. His picture would be thrown up on the wall of a lot of those old TV shows and movies. If you wanted to tell people a character was bad, Ed Brown and Chico and the man, the man of course was Ed Brown. He had Hoover, a picture of Hoover on his wall. That was a little code there for the character in question being a bad guy. And you are going to definitely start seeing that with President Trump. I'm sure that TV shows in the future will just have him on the wall. And part of that bombastic personality is giving people that ammunition. So I think people have to hold him responsible, hold all the candidates responsible. When he won in 2016, I had a friend who was quite liberal and she was just beside herself. And I said, as a nation, we've survived far worse than anything you think any given president can do to the country. James K. Polk was buying and selling human beings out of the White House. He could hear the slave markets from the White House. That's something horrible. That was a horrible stain. We spent a lot of blood and treasure, as they say. Treasure? We're not pirates. But we spent a lot of blood, a lot of years, a lot of money to defeat slavery. 
don't buy this new idea that it was about something else, either about states' rights or it was about dominance or economics. It, eh, things are all factors. But one thing that I wanted to bring up was this column about that 1876 election in the aftermath of the Civil War, because this is something that's often brought up as something to tarnish the Republican brand. We had Rutherford B. Hayes battling Samuel J. Tilden of New York. When I looked back at that for my column in the New York Sun, I noted just how crazy and how much evidence there was of real efforts to steal that election. The Democrats were certainly not angels in this process. And one of the things that I always tell people is we have to remember that the reason why the three states of Louisiana, Florida, and South Carolina were disputed at all in that election, the only reason the Democrats had a chance to win them was because they suppressed the freedmen, the newly freed African-Americans, and they didn't let them vote. As much as people say, well, Hayes ended Reconstruction. For one thing, he obtained promises, much like they did from the Taliban, right? That the Southern white Democrats would respect the rights of the freedmen in order to remove the troops. But also, speaking of Afghanistan, don't forget we'd been occupying the Southern states for 20 years, in a time before Zoom, and a time before email, and a time before even telephones. People get tired of occupations. They wanted to put the war behind them. And it's terrible that they did so at the expense of the freemen. That's never something that I take lightly. I understand that. But I also understand human nature. So then you get to 1876, this election. Tilden, had he won, it would have been much worse. Don't think for a second he wouldn't have ended Reconstruction. I was on a tour once at the James A. Garfield home in Mentor, Ohio, and he was one of the men that was on this commission to decide that disputed election and pick which slate of electors was the right one. People said, well, he fought in the Civil War. He was so pro the Black cause, and yet he did this thing and gave the election to an evil Republican, Rutherford B. Hayes, his fellow evil Republican from Ohio. And I pointed out to them, do you have any idea what the Democratic Party was back in those days? They were the party that they were the party that had brought on the rebellion. And right now we have these 16 Michigan Republicans, for instance, under indictment for declaring President Trump victorious in their state over President Biden. That plot is cast as unprecedented, even though it's basically with just a bunch of people in a hotel room. They shouldn't have been doing it how they thought they could get away with it. I don't know. Maybe go out and try to win some votes instead. The Democrats have a huge advantage of many millions in this country. I think it's 38 million in registered voters. So you start the game down a field goal. Or Derek and I are both hockey fans. So let's say you start down three goals in the first period. You've got some ground to make up. And this is something that President Trump honestly doesn't do at all. And I was very surprised by that because you eke in in 2016 by the Electoral College, as does Rutherford B. Hayes eventually in 1876. But you don't make a real effort to expand your voters. He ran a base-only campaign. And as much as his supporters are willing to walk over broken glass for him, there's not enough. There's not enough to just turn out Republicans. Something President Reagan always did recognizing this was he would talk about, I used to be a Democrat. I'm a recovering Democrat. And he would add that little glint in his eye. And he would say what? He said, I didn't leave the party, they left me. I started out as a Democrat when it seemed like they wanted to help the average person and cut the bureaucracy. It's never easy to change, but each of us must be true to our beliefs. I believe in more opportunity for people, not higher taxes for government, and inflation must be kept down. When you think of what's at stake, voting for what you believe, 
isn't so hard after all. President Reagan, leadership that's working. And that gave other Democrats the okay to switch to and to support him. That's very much a thing of the past, I think, for, for both parties, really, but especially for Republicans. And they're the ones who have the ground to make up. Just watching Fox and just reading conservative media, just listening to conservative radio shows that are rah-rah, that never consider what the other side is doing. It gives you this false sense of nothing can go wrong and that the wind is in the bag. Everybody agrees with me. Well, nobody agrees with you. Not 100%. I can tell you right now, my wife, her and I don't agree on everything. I can guarantee you I am wrong on plenty of things. As I said before about a prison sentence at Fox, I felt very much like that was always, well, I'm staging a car wreck every half hour for the news wheel so that people give into that base instinct to look when they see a wreck on the side of a road. And you know what? None of those folks that are producing those shows particularly care one way or the other if Republicans win. They care about selling those ads. It's not about ideas anymore. And for me, that was a real eye-opener after Rush passed away, just how few in conservative media really care about the issues and the ideas and aren't just out for themselves. That's something I think people like us who consume conservative media have to hold people accountable for that we listen to, that we trust with our ears and our eyeballs. And that's one reason I wrote this column, because this is the kind of stuff that people used to talk about. They would cite things from history. Those Michigan Republicans, for instance, they can't hold a candle with their false electors to the people that were trying to steal this election in 1876 for Samuel J. Tilden. That election was settled just by a single vote, as you may know, at the Electoral College after that commission. But those Democratic operatives leapt into action just as Republicans did to try to hold those states they knew had been stolen by suppression of the Black vote. The New York Tribune published reports afterwards, Tilden and his campaign sought to use coded telegrams to bribe local officials to switch the counts for Tilden. These were found and printed, and it's one reason if you've ever wondered why Samuel J. Tilden never tried again for the presidency, this was why it really damaged his brand, so to speak, with the American people when they found out that he was engaged in these shenanigans, or at least people on his behalf were. Florida's Democratic Attorney General back then. He was supported by the legislative and judicial branches of the Sunshine State. They just went out and declared Tilden a winner. They said he won the state. That's it. It's over. The state canvassing board certified Rutherford B. Hayes. That's one of the reasons that later that state was one of the disputed ones in the Electoral College. In 2020, the elections for governor and president in Arizona, they were both disputed, right? That was also the case in Louisiana in 1876. They submitted competing slates of electors for president. There's another bit of confusion. President Grant, by the way, he was a Republican and he backed Hayes, who was also a Republican. In Arizona, the Democratic candidate laid claim to the governorship and he called the state for Tilden. And a House resolution in Washington stated that Tilden was the duly elected president. South Carolina Democrats held no positions of power, so they couldn't pull off many tricks, but they tried to say that the election had been stolen because there was a voter registration law required by the state constitution that the state didn't have. So, hey, let's just get rid of that. Let's just invalidate all the votes. And hey, shocker, the guy we want is the guy who will say one. Well, that didn't get pulled off either. But South Carolina, second state or third state, I guess, depending how you count, along with Louisiana and Florida, to be disputed. In Congress, the Democratic representative from New York, Abram Hewitt, he's also a future mayor of Gotham, he challenged Vermont's certification. 
Despite a Green Mountain landslide for Hayes, the guy decided, no, 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 I have this box here. Very, very much like Joe McCarthy, right? I have this box and I'll tell you, it has all of these extra ballots in it. And they're shockingly all for Tilden. The Congress said, you are full of that stuff that, as Harry Truman used to say, that Best tried to get him to call manure and he never would. So the House ignored his plea and they said, forget it. Hayes won that state. Can you please try to contain this just to the three disputed states? <laughs> Democrats also backed the election denial, a term that they hadn't invented yet, in the House with a filibuster. They tried to filibuster Hayes' win. And that's a power, by the way, in the House. That's not a mistake. The House had that power until 1890 to filibuster and hold up legislation. In far off Oregon, Wow, this election, right? Not not limited to three states. In Oregon, a month after the 1876 election, the Sun reported that, quote, there was an expectation, unquote, that the state's Democratic establishment would give Mr. Tilden the electoral vote he needed by invalidating a Republican elector and shifting him over to Tilden. And as I said, just one elector would have swung this election. And that would have been really bad for all of America, I would say, but also for freed Blacks men and women in particular. That plot fortunately also failed. It was that electoral commission that settled Hayes as the victor rather than sending the election to the House, as I would argue they probably should have, because that's mandated by the Constitution when no candidate gets the required majority. That's now 271 electoral votes, of course. That may have been President Trump's endgame, try to get the election thrown to the House by disputing as many states as he could because Republicans have more state delegations at the moment and each would get a single ballot for president. Bing, bam, boom, he is reelected. So shenanigans like this, uh, maybe that's too weak a word, but people who are doing things in elections to try to win them, there are clear illegalities, especially in that 1876 election. It was the greatest act of election denial in history. And that's what the Civil War was, sparked by that same Democratic Party back then in refusing to accept President Lincoln's victory. All those states seceded, and you want to talk about an armed insurrection, there it was. But none of the Confederates were charged with treason, were thrown around so casually nowadays, and that the Constitution sets an extremely high bar for. And none of those Tilden schemers ever faced charges either. The country decided to move on as incredible and unbelievable as that seems today when we celebrate January 6th as a secular holiday. Democrats still resented Rutherford B. Hayes and called him Rutherford. As a writer, you look at Rutherford and say, what can I make fun of that with? But they managed Rutherford and they set their sights in the next election. Hayes said he wouldn't stand for re-election. Republicans won that year by playing a stronger and I would argue more moral hand. Tilden's support in those disputed states had been exaggerated by the suppression of Black voters, so Republicans worked to win a clean mandate the next time in 1880. Instead of focusing their eyes on the past, twisting their heads backwards, they would move on and try to do what was best for the country. Imagine that. It was, in fact, Rutherford B. Hayes who said he serves his party best, who serves his country best. That was the goal. We all have to live here, right? We all have to live here. We are on this boat together. As Benjamin Franklin said, after the vote for the Declaration of Independence, we must all hang together or we will hang separately. Americans in 1876 looked to the future after that disputed election. They healed partisan divisions as much as they could. They still despised each other, sure. But the American people, all of us or our antecedents, we expected better. 
We knew that they wanted to do the work of government. We knew that we didn't want them acting like children. We knew that if they were keeping the wounds of that election open and bleeding, it wouldn't be good for anybody. And that kind of unity, which President Biden promised so many times on the campaign trail, remains a really noble goal. And one that I think both the Democrats prosecuting the failed election schemers in 2020 and Mr. Trump, who continues to look backwards too much, in my view, they would both do well to consider that as they relitigate 2020 instead of moving on to 2024 with a clean slate. Television highlights of the news of yesteryear. Defeat is in the distance as Democrat delegates arrive in San Francisco for the 1920 convention that will select a presidential candidate to oppose Republicans, Warren G. Harding. Although visitors succeed in turning Frisco into a true convention city, nationwide interest was apathetic. I want to bring up another column that I wrote, and that's about what may be forward. At the New York Sun, we always try to look forward in stories, not just rewrite wire copy and not just say what everyone else is saying. To me, when they tell you something is viral, that just means everyone else already talked about it and nobody has anything new to say. So for me, I want to talk about this column, and it's called 100 Years After Deb's Campaign from Prison, Trump May End Up Doing the Same. The 45th president faces more legal jeopardy than the socialist candidate, but he shares his defiant streak. In that post-Civil War period, the Republicans did something called waving the bloody shirt. That was this notion they would always bring up the war to tar and feather Democrats, including Tilden. And so you can't blame Democrats today for doing the same thing about January 6th, although, of course, they exaggerate the heck out of it to make it sound like it was the Civil War and Pearl Harbor and 9-11 and all these huge, huge calamities that really don't hold a candle to it. I think we just need a little sense of scale. Maybe as a historian, I have that more than most, but I do try to share it. We have President Trump facing multiple indictments and maybe more to come. He could spend Election Day 2024 in prison. And I think for a long time, that has been the holy grail of people for whom he's their white whale, or I guess their orange whale. They want to stick him in prison. They think this at last will end his candidacy. And instead, I would say, from having watched the man, he'll probably follow the path of the celebrated Socialist Party candidate, Eugene V. Debs, 100 years ago. In the 1920 election, Americans had just emerged from a global pandemic and World War I. President Wilson, a Democrat, used that occasion to target political opponents. And if you ever want to find somebody to really dislike in history, go read up on Woodrow Wilson. Well, Debs risked prosecution and he spoke out against Mr. Wilson's war, as they called it. And he said American boys were fit for something better than cannon fodder. I may not be able to say all I think, Debs told a crowd in Canton, Ohio, which is President McKinley's hometown, but I am not going to say anything that I do not think. I would a thousand times rather be a free soul in jail than be a sycophant and a coward in the streets. Now, maybe you add a couple of biglies in there and you can hear President Trump saying those same words. He's going to keep fighting for what he believes in. Wilson had won re-election in 1916 on the slogan, he kept us out of war which wasn't a slogan he particularly liked. It wasn't the official slogan, but people did believe he had kept him out of war and would continue to do so. However, Wilson plunged the nation into Europe's fight just 30 days after delivering his second inaugural address. How nice of him. 
And of course, he couldn't flip a switch. He'd been feeding the nation all this isolationist rhetoric. And now he tells them, we have to go over there and stop the Hun and make the world safe for democracy. And people said, the heck with that. Five minutes ago, you were telling us we had to stay out of Europe's fight. So we had no part of that. The Atlantic Ocean would protect us. So military recruiting lags. And what does Wilson do? Well, he certainly doesn't say he was wrong. Wilson never said he was wrong. He imposes a draft and he cracks down on any man who balked at serving the country. Now, Debs did not like that. Many people did not like that, needless to say. And he responded that the government could arrest the resistors, but they cannot put the socialist movement in jail. And by the way, isn't it delicious? Isn't it a fun parallel in history to compare Donald Trump with a socialist? And the guy, he's moved on from socialism now. He said in his speech in Montgomery, Alabama, and he's starting to call President Biden a communist. But here he is, in my column at least, being compared to this huge socialist who ran for president five times. So Debs was prosecuted under Wilson's Sedition Act of 1917. And here's another parallel. That was born out of the same Espionage Act that Mr. Trump is charged with violating for mishandling classified documents. Sedition Act made it a crime to, quote, willfully utter, print, write, or publish any disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the United States government. Talk about language that you can drive a truck through. Willfully utter, well, willfully is already right there. Okay, do you unwillfully utter things? I guess you could argue it if you were a lawyer. Disloyal, that's a pretty scary word. That's pretty wide. You're disloyal for doing anything somebody doesn't like, right? They throw that word around all the time, just like treason. Profane, well, that's the week in F and Review for you right there. Derek's on his way to prison right now. They're not going to let him bring his cats with him. I'll, I'll tell you right now. Scurrilous or abusive language. Oh, well, I mean, come on. It's in the First Amendment. The First Amendment is exactly there to be able to abuse and insult the government. It's not there to protect Hustler Magazine, although, of course, there was that famous Supreme Court case. This was not going to stand up to a constitutional challenge, one would hope. The indictment accused Debs of sedition by, quote, uttering language intended to incite, provoke, and encourage resistance to the United States. Imagine that. Imagine all those folks with the resist t-shirts and all of you go to jail under Woodrow Wilson. The Sun described Debs' actions as having endeavored to destroy the government. These both foretell the charges leveled at Mr. Trump this very year. Richard Lovelace, the English poet who was also in prison for protesting his government, wrote that famous line, stone walls do not a prison make, nor iron bars a cage. Well, that might have been Debs's campaign motto, because he told the court that he wouldn't retract a single word he said, even if he died in jail. And you could see people rallying to somebody like that. It was just so bold and so selfless. And that's something that I would argue is much more in line today with the conservative ideology, this selflessness that it is with socialism and communists, which my fellow Rutgers alum Milton Friedman said is the most selfish and greedy ideology in the world is communism and socialism. Tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? You think Russia doesn't run on greed? You think China doesn't run on greed? What is greed? Of course, none of us are greedy. It's only the other fellow who's greedy. <laughs> this, the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. Einstein didn't construct his theory under order from a, from a, a bureaucrat. Henry Ford didn't revolutionize the automobile industry that way. 
in the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty you're talking about, the only cases in recorded history are where they, where they have had capitalism and largely free trade. Deb said, I asked for no mercy. He was sentenced to 10 years in the big ass. Now, Mr. Trump, of course, faces more legal jeopardy than the socialist, but he shares that defiant streak. This is what Deb said as he entered into prison. The son quoted him at the time. I enter the prison door as a flaming revolutionist, my head unbent, my spirit untamed, my soul unconquerable. Again, throwing a few believe me, believe me's in there, and you have what very likely could be what Donald Trump says if they end up putting him in jail. And as for his campaign, you can see Republicans doing what the Socialist Party did. They nominated, quote, convict 2253, and they went to the prison with all of the newsreel cameras there, went to the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, and they told him, hey, you're our guy. So he called it a front cell campaign, a parody of the front porch campaigns. On election day, Debs won 3.4% of the vote. Pretty respectable considering the guy couldn't leave a cell and he'd been convicted by the government. His defiance caught the eye of the man who replaced Wilson. Over 60% of Americans pulled the lever for President Harding. He was a conservative Republican who promised a return to normalcy, which was the same phrase Mr. Biden appropriated in 2020, by the way. But unlike President Biden, President Harding really tried to live that motto. The Sedition Act was repealed six weeks after Harding's landslide, and two days before Christmas in 1921, he commuted the sentences of Debs and 23 other political prisoners. Harding said, I thought the spirit of clemency was quite in harmony with the things we were trying to do in Washington, that Debs had never been guilty of any overt act, that he never countenanced the destruction of government by force, and probably I could persuade him to become a factor in contributing to tranquility throughout the land. That's a word that he no doubt chose because that appears in the Constitution to ensure domestic tranquility. That's what everyone says they want today, but we don't demand it of our leaders. In an era when, like ours, Americans feared political violence, particularly from the left, and anarchists assassinated President McKinley in 1901, and they went on a real tear across the country in the Gilded Age, blowing up, assassinating, killing everywhere across the globe. Harding decided he would free Debs, and he invited him to the White House. And these were bold moves to bind up the nation's wounds, a phrase used by Abraham Lincoln, rather than exploit them, rather than play on those fears. It would be so nice to hear somebody talk about some issues for a change instead of personalities. But that's what we get today. That's how you play to that same instinct that gets us looking when we see a crash in the side of the road by playing off emotions and not playing on issues. And Debs, as wrong as he was on all the socialist stuff, the guy at least wanted to get some ideas out there. He at least called on America to live up to the Constitution and specifically that First Amendment right to criticize the government. Harding and Debs had this really unlikely love fest at the White House. Harding told Debs, I am now glad to meet you. I've heard a lot about you personally. And Debs praised the president as a kind gentleman, one who I believe possesses humane impulses. Man, I try not to idealize the past, but what are you going to do? It's clearly right here in black and white. They were able to get along without anybody on either side, their supporters, calling them heretics. You remember that moment when Jimmy Fallon tussled Trump's hair and, oh my gosh, nobody wanted to watch. He was a heretic. Or the moment when Ellen DeGeneres was seen sitting with President George W. Bush, who was the evil Republican of the moment back then. People got so upset. 
And I'll tell you, this this happened with Rush too, a little bit in a way. People were telling him, well, how could you meet with Hillary Clinton? How could you be nice to her? Well, he didn't meet with her, but he was at a wedding and the father of the bride said, hey, Rush, I'd like you to take a picture here with Senator Clinton. And so Rush, of course, he did it and he talked to her and he apologized for that one thing that happened way back on the TV show. I'm not going to repeat it yet again, if you don't remember. He apologized. They had a nice little conversation. And there were some listeners who were mad about that. They, How could you meet with her? Why didn't you tell her this? Why didn't you tell her that? You, Why did you do that? And he said, it was a wedding. We were there to celebrate two people being married. It's not the place. He said, I, I'm always respectful to presidents and I'm always respectful to people in office. She's a former first lady. And we had a, a little talk and I moved on. Well, Rush had the power to do that because he had that connection with the audience that I mentioned at the very top of the show. A lot of politicians are not confident in that connection because they never do anything to build it. And honestly, as with people in the media, they never really care. They're not true believers. They're just out there trying to get some retweets, trying to get some campaign donations. And so the common decency that, yes, it's easy to say, well, the other side is mean. They're mean to me. Let me tell you something. My New York Sun columns, I have people that call me, you're a left wing, you're a rhino. And I have people who tell me, well, you're some right wing crazy. Like I always described Rush, I would always tell him, you're you're John Madden up in the booth with that mustard yellow Monday night football jacket on. You got that blazer on. You're not a coach on the sidelines. People want you down on the sidelines telling the Bears how to stop the run. But that's not the job. The job is analysis. I've worked on campaigns. If somebody wants to hire me for a campaign again, hey, I'm all in on the strategy side and the playbook side. But as far as my work in the New York Sun, I'm looking for ways to give a broader perspective. That's what history does for us. And something I think way too few histories do. Michael Beschloss recently, I want to play you a couple of those clips. Donald Trump is who our founders dreaded. They always worry that someone could get, and they talked about men, they didn't think of women getting elected at that time, someone getting himself elected to the president who was reckless and lawless and a demagogue and out for his own power and maybe allied secretly with hostile foreign governments. All that finally came to pass, at least it seemed, in the case of Donald Trump. I think this shows the danger of weaponizing history as just another tool in our partisan arsenal. From time to time, America faces threats from monsters who want to destroy our democracy. That happened in 1861 with the Confederacy. Abraham Lincoln and you know Northern soldiers and Northern voters came to our rescue, saved the Union. The same thing happened in 1933, almost at the last minute. Franklin Roosevelt came to power, saved our economic system. Pearl Harbor, 1941, we were bombed. Our system was very much in danger. Our democracy, many people were giving it up and saying that, you know, the, the democracy had seen its last days. Franklin Roosevelt helped to put a coalition together at the last minute to save democracy and freedom around the world. 9-11, 2001, Osama bin Laden and other terrorists hated our democracy, tried to destroy it. Now, there it is. You see right there, we're comparing it to Pearl Harbor and we're comparing it to all the big horror set pieces. Well, how about the Whiskey Rebellion? There was a Whiskey Rebellion and he certainly knows this, does Michael Beschloss. Well, you know what? President Washington pardoned those men who rebelled against the government, an actual armed rebellion against the government that occurred in the U.S. They didn't pursue them. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, he 
pardoned a naturalized American citizen who was spying for the Nazis because they wanted to bind up the nation's wounds. And if you look back at the Federalist Papers, you see that that was the idea of giving a president the pardon power in the first place. And it's, of course, up to each president how they want to use it. But the fact that it hasn't been used at all and the fact that all these presidents love to tell you about history and everyone wants to be, I'm the next Theodore Roosevelt, I'm the next JFK, Lincoln, Reagan. Well, how about you just be the best version you can of yourself? And if you want to look back at somebody like Washington, if you want to do more than just live in the house where he laid the cornerstone 200 and some years ago, well, how about you do some of the things that he did that were hard, that make history look back at him positively? I've read a biography, at least one, on every single president. And I always try to find something good. And some of them really challenge you to find something you like. You know, a guy like John Tyler, who I wrote about in a recent column, he had a really funny moment after the presidency when his enemies were going after him. The guy wasn't likable. Nobody really liked him. This biographer was trying so hard. It's a book written in 1939 to make him sound like just a great guy, champion of the old South. Chester A. Arthur is probably the best example of this. The guy comes into the presidency after somebody shoots Garfield, right? Okay, they shoot the president of the United States. You're the vice president. And the guy who caps him says, Arthur is president now. I'm a stalwart. Oh my God, stop helping. Can you imagine that moment? Imagine if after Oswald shoots Kennedy, he says, I did this so Johnson would be president. He's so disgraced by this that the Garfield family and the Garfield government doesn't even want Arthur in Washington. And then in New Jersey, he ends up dying at the Jersey Shore in a cottage where he went to recover. And so what does he do? He's just some little schlub political appointee. He'd run the port of New York. He was a general, but not wartime general, really, in the Civil War. He was the political hack of all political hacks, was Chester A. Arthur. And he gets this burden of the presidency thrust upon him. But he does something that we always hear about, but that few do, and that's grow into the presidency. I have yet to see that from President Biden. After 50 years in the Senate, I think he's stuck in that Senate mode. And maybe he just doesn't have it in him. But the presidency for Arthur, he grows in it. He starts changing all that patronage because he knew the guy who shot Garfield did it because he wanted to be appointed minister to France, which is kind of bizarre, but that's how he identified. Today, we wouldn't be able to criticize Charlie Gateau because he thought he was worthy of it. He plagiarized a couple of speeches and decided that that was responsible for Garfield's victory and went and shot him, unfortunately. But when the patronage people start coming to Arthur and asking for payment, including Roscoe Conkling, could put him in that position, pushed for him. He was his man to unite these Republican factions. Arthur told him no. Conklin couldn't believe it. And he walked out and they said, well, hey, did we get all these sweet, sweet spoils that we wanted? And Conklin shakes his head and he says, nope, he's not our Chet anymore. Now he's the president. If I was there in the Oval Office and I was consulting a president, I would say, you're not just you anymore. It's time to rise up and be something bigger. And I think when you look at people in history, there's always that weird thing that I often say on the History Author Show that you ever notice dead people always agree with you? So you look back and you say, well, sure, Washington would agree with me. Eisenhower would agree with me. I personally think there was no choice in World War II other than to drop the nuclear bombs on Japan to end the war. And I know Derek talked about that last week, but Dwight D. Eisenhower opposed it. He was with the Russians or the Soviets at the time, and he said the, the warmth went out of the room and it was so cold and they were really mad and it set back our relations. 
Well, I'm not going to lie to you and say, Ike agreed with me. Everybody agreed. I'm going to hear out his position and look at it again. I think, of course, he was making that decision at the time. He probably wasn't privy to all the intel that it would have been a bloodbath for the Japanese and Americans at the time had they not used those two bombs. But it's something you have to take into consideration. I think there's a lot of that in the media and among historians. They just want to ignore the things they don't like and claim so-and-so would always agree with me. And I want to invite all of you when listening to them or when reading history, keep that in mind. That's all. Just remember, they were people just like us. There are no silver bullets in history that allow you to pluck those people from the grave and say, this applies. They said this thing. This applies to this moment. Sure, go back, read the Federalist Papers, understand the Constitution, but don't claim it says something it doesn't. If you don't like something that it says, go through that hard process of changing it. Amend the Constitution. Don't just ignore it because it's inconvenient for you in the moment. And certainly don't go grave robbing people and say they agree with you. Certainly don't say we've never experienced something as horrible as President Trump or January 6th, just because you've never experienced it. And I'll leave you with one little example when people say things like, so-and-so is the worst president ever. No, they're all Hitler now. Everyone in the future, to paraphrase Andy Warhol, gets to be Hitler for 15 minutes, especially if they run for office. But you know what I say to people and they'll, they'll tell me that? I'll say, well, how would you compare him to Millard Fillmore? How would you compare him to President Harding? Oh, what do you think? Uh, what do you, don't you think he was worse? You know, throw out the Credit Mobilier scandal. That's from James Garfield's day. And it sounds, it's French, right? It has a French name. So that intimidates people a little before talking about using words. So just ask people, how do you compare them to these other presidents? Well, they don't know anything about them. If they do know, it's probably just the conventional wisdom. It's probably just a few little moments that they heard from some TV historian that became a celebrity historian. When the job of historians isn't to go on TV and talk in that way, in my opinion, about what's happening now. History is not just another tool to hammer people over the head. Well, that's it for the Monday edition of the Derek Hunter Show. I know when I hear Derek sign off, I always am left wanting more. So I hope you're left wanting more of me. I will be here all week, as they used to say in the vaudeville days. So please do come back. Remember to support Derek at patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast or DerekHunter.locals.com. And I have those offers for you at the New York Sun. If you'd like to win an autographed copy of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's book, Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love, you can sign up for one of those at nysun.com slash book. That's nysun.com slash book. And we have that offer up there, a penny a day. Think of that. You can still get a penny daily. For somebody living in the past like me, that's awesome. You can get a subscription to the New York Sun and you get that snazzy mug that has our slogan that's been there since 1833, the sun shines for all. We want everybody to be reading. We're not just preaching to the choir. We're trying to change hearts and minds, but more importantly, inform hearts and minds and do some really good journalism. I'm so proud to be there. That offer is at mysun.com slash mug. Again, you can find me at History Dean. Please feel free to tweet me if you'd like me to address any other topics, if you have something you'd like to bring up, if you have questions about my time working for Rush or working at Fox News Channel, I would love to hear from you. Also, I used to be a veterinary technician. So if you have questions about your cat coughing up a hairball, uh, you can you can tweet me about that too. I probably will answer it there, not here. Although Derek does have really adorable cats. How many cats is he up to now? 
four cats, that makes you a crazy cat man. People say crazy cat lady, but the number is lower for men. I suppose some could be counted against Heather and the girls, but I don't know. He's a little of a crazy cat man, but I love him for that. And I'm so looking forward to spending Tuesday with you. Please do return. And if you liked what you heard today, do tell a friend. Say, go away, boy. You bother me.